chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 in our Bibles, and you've been with us on these Lord's Days between Mother's Day and Father's Day, you know that it has been primarily in our evening services that we have been giving our attention to our philosophy of ministry, and then under that umbrella of that broad theme, we've been considering uh, together the conduct in our homes that contributes to the glorification of God. Uh, to this point, we have considered the conduct in, in the order of Ephesians, starting, if you'll look back to chapter 5 and verse 22, we first of all considered the conduct on the part of wives. And then, beginning in verse 25, as you can see, the first word is husbands. As we move into chapter 6, the first word of verse 1 is children. And now on this Father's Day, we are at the place of exploring verse 4 and the conduct of fathers that contributes to the glorification of God. And I just want to remind you, without attempting to retrace all of the ground, that this idea of conduct that glorifies God isn't something we just kind of picked and decided to run with. All right, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 point to what God the Father is doing by Christ through the church to the praising of his what? To the praising of his glory. And then chapter 4 picks that up by urging us to walk worthy of that calling to conduct ourselves in a way that contributes to God's purpose to glorify himself. And so we are still in that, uh, in, in the flow of Ephesians, we're still in that secondary theme of conduct that contributes to the glorification of God when we get to all of this exhortation to husbands and wives and parents and children. And so we're going to consider this morning what kind of conduct on the part of fathers contributes to the glorification of God? And there are three exhortations given to fathers in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And the first of those, as you can see, is to refrain from something. Fathers should refrain from what? What do you see there? From provoking our children to wrath. And I know we've just settled in here, but go ahead and turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. It's just a couple of pages or flex on your, on your phone. But Colossians chapter 3, and I want us to see the companion expression in verse 21. Notice, fathers, again, and then provoke not your children to anger, but we have this additional description. Lest they be what? Lest they be discouraged. And the word discouraged, that is translated discouraged, is a word that has the idea of losing spirit. Right, if, you, if you think about a balloon of some sort, and uh, there's a, a, a small hole that is put into that balloon, and the air starts to what? The air starts to leak out, seep out. Uh, there should be life, there should be... Uh, hopeful anticipation. There should be uh, vigor and energy in our young people that is spent in, in serving and enjoying their Lord, but that can start to leak out. That can start to fizzle on account of parents provoking their children. 
And I know we can stop and clarify that, that it is true that stubbornness and disobedience on the part of a child can contribute to their own hurt. I mean, the way of a transgressor is what? The way of a transgressor is hard. So uh, a self-willed kid is not going to enjoy life. <laughs> they can't. It doesn't work in God's universe. All right. But this passage does also warn us that parents can exasperate and they can discourage and, and vigor and joy and energy, life can start to dissipate on the parts of kids where parents are exasperating and discouraging. Now, what contributes to that? The Bible here doesn't spell it out and honestly there's no list anywhere um, you, can, you can consider some examples of parents and their children in the Bible. I do think of Jacob. Um, he definitely provoked his sons by showing favoritism to one particular son. And, and the corollary of that was relative inattention to others. Um, inattention on its own because of being occupied with Work or personal hobbies or whatever it may be, um, inattention and, and certainly favoritism can, can contribute to provoking and discouraging. King Saul provoked his son Jonathan to anger by his own angry explosions at others. And Jonathan got really upset when he watched how his dad exploded on David and others in the realm. Now David provoked his son Absalom to anger by first of all refusing to confront sin in the family and, and take the leadership that should have been taken in the incident with, with uh, Amnon and Tamar. But David further provoked that by failing to communicate and solve problems in the aftermath and just let it all sit there. No leadership and then not communication after the fact. And I'm just citing some of the ways that the Bible indicates by example that parents can exasperate our children and stir up anger. You know, sometimes this can happen even very subtly by, by motivated, um, disciplined, productive parents. We, we want our kids to pursue excellence every part of their life. Uh, we want them to take care of their rooms, to take care of their possessions. We want them to take care of our homes and our garages, right, Ben? We, we want uh, them to work at developing their gifts and abilities. And, and when they aren't matching up, sometimes... In our response to them, we can get too personal. It becomes almost about us and our successful parenting, and we respond in a way that, that can hurt. I, I think of pastors who have said, and you probably heard this phrase, but I sometimes will hear pastors almost intimate this, you know, the ministry would be great if it weren't for the what? If it weren't for the people. Well, there is no ministry if there's not what? There's not people. But parents can even kind of slide into, well, family life would be great if it weren't for my kids being an undisciplined mess. Okay. But I remind us that Proverbs 14.4 says, where there is no ox, okay, the manger is clean. 
You get the picture there? Do, do we really want a perfectly clean house and perfectly e- executed schedules without children around to mess them up? And I know we don't. But we need to be careful that we don't give off that impression. That somehow these kids are really messing up our lives. Psalm 103 and verse 13. I know if even if you're not thinking of this exact reference, that, that this truth is comforting to you. That like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord does what? So the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And remember this. He knoweth our frame, and he remembereth that we are but dust. There's no doubt that living with um, an unsaved toddler um, puts pressure on a home. And there's also no doubt that living with an unregenerate teenager can really put pressure on a home. We saw last week in our Matthew series that there is a place for even edifying anger. But if we are reflecting our Lord, the needs in our children will more often than not stir pity in our heart rather than exasperating us and us exasperating them to a hurtful end. We definitely need to be warned about the cumulative impact of our responding with exasperation and stirring it up in them and and where we've already hurt we just need to humble ourselves before god and before our children and work at the communication necessary to not leave a stumbling block while we plead with the lord to have mercy on them but we've got to be serious about refraining from exasperating to the point that we have discouraged and they lose spirit But then back in Ephesians chapter 6, after that admonition of what we're to refrain from, notice there's two positively stated activities fathers are exhorted to. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the first truth we want to underscore about nurture is that it is more than verbal. Um, it, it will use at times verbal instruction, but what you want to highlight again about nurture as you think of it is that it is, it is something far more than just a few words of wisdom here and there. In fact, go back to Hebrews chapter 12, Brother Rose led us in reading that earlier, but I want you to see how this exact same word, bring them up in the nurture that exact Greek word is, trans, it is found in Hebrews 12 seven times. But it's not translated nurture. Here it is beginning in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the nurture of the Lord. Same word. Despise not the chastening of the Lord. In this case, what does that nurture include? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Nor faint when thou art what? Okay, so this nurturing of the Lord involves rebuking. And verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he... Here it is again, same word, he nurtures and 
scourges. Okay, that's a form of discipline that it really involves flogging. That's the same word as the word for flogging. Does that sound painful? Okay, and I'm going to skip over some, but it is absolutely painful. Because, look down to verse 11. Now no, same word again. Now no nurturing for the present seemeth to be what? Okay? And I, I know that children sometimes have heard parents say, you know, this is, going, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I know that you can't begin to really fully comprehend that. <laughs> because the fact is, corporal punishment, what? Hurts. And nobody says, oh, goody, 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 I am so glad my dad loves me this much. <laughs> Please, don't stop there. Give me more, Right? Nobody says that. And the Spirit of God is saying it. No, pre- no, no nurture like this, no discipline, no chastening, seemeth to be joyous, but instead what? But, but the loving Heavenly Father stays at it because afterward it does what? Afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So, nurture does involve corrective discipline. That's, that's clearly the focus of, of the word as it's used here. Now, brethren, what is true of the Lord's nurturing of us as his spiritual children, his loving us enough to administer corrective discipline, that is painful. What, what is true of the Lord, he exhorts upon us as, as earthly parents. To our physical children. Proverbs 13 and verse 24 says, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him disciplines him diligently. I might be tempted to spare the rod for all kinds of reasons. In part, I might be tempted to spare the rod because I I, I see in my kids my own need. Really, am I going to discipline them for what I need to grow in? But I need to trust God and I need to demonstrate love. Proverbs 29 and verse 15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Proverbs 29 and verse 17, Correct thy son and he shall give thee rest, yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. And I often think the reverse is implied there. Correct thy son and he'll give thee rest. But the reverse is implied. If you don't correct your children when they're young, when that son is older, he's going to wear you out and break your heart. We, we don't gain one ounce of relief by, by shirking parental duty. We, we may think we're too tired now. I don't have the time. I'm, you know, whatever. I can't deal with it right now. But, but we are sowing seeds all the time that are going to spring up in a harvest in the not-too-distant future for good or bad. And, and here's God's wisdom. Correct your son while there's hope. This morning is, is not the time to, for a great deal of practical counsel about what's involved in the wise use of, of what Proverbs describes as a rod. Uh, if you're burdened about that, I'd be glad to, to even meet and give counsel. But, but I would add this. 
that again, as you think about your own relationship to the Lord and to his chastening, if you've known the Lord for any length of time, you've come to know that there is love and security in the Lord's discipline. And if we will give care to discipline that is after the manner of the Lord, our children will also come to know security and, and will know profit in our dealings with them. So the nurture involves corrective discipline. But there's actually more to nurture than just this disciplinary correction. I do want to have you turn to Acts chapter 7. And I want you to see another way, the same word, bring them up in the nurture of the Lord. I want you to see another way this, this word is translated. This one is in Acts 7 and verse 22. And it's in a section reporting about Moses in his early years. And I'm going to have to just drop down into verse 22 for time's sake. Notice, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And it is the word learned that is our same word as Ephesians 6, 4, nurtured. Moses was, we would say, Moses was nurtured in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Or, what would you think of when it's describing him growing up in Pharaoh's palace and, and he's being nurtured? And, and in the context of this, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, what is it talking about? Yeah, it's talking about he was educated, right? He's educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Again, he's nurtured in it. But you think about this. You think about this, this kind of, of education. I know sometimes, you know, it's bad English, but I'm going to learn him a thing or two, right? <laughs> I think it's more, I'm going to teach, um, and, and he's educated. So just think about broad education. That's what the word is referring to. It, it has subjects. It has a curriculum. It prepares lectures. It gives homework. It, um, it measures progress through testing. It gives incentives uh, as rewards for progress or, or penalty for insufficient progress. Th this is what education involves. Now, if I go back and I recognize this is the responsibility of fathers, okay, this is telling us that God has given parents the responsibility of pointing the entire uh, you know, for the entire process of pointing a, a child down a particular direction and encouraging them and moving them towards a target. Um, all children need a certain measure of compulsion to reach maturity in life. They need us to communicate a value for education in multiple arenas. They, they need to know that we, that we value their development enough to insist on it. Right? They're not going to learn to value school on their own. They aren't going to value learning to work and doing a job well on their own. They aren't going to, to learn to prepare for the future on their own. Okay, our children are born, and the Bible says so, our children are born only valuing their immediate comfort and pleasure. 
If they're going to be useful, productive citizens that turn into anything in life, someone is going to have to inspire them and compel them to grow up out of their immaturity and provide a structure for that. Um, Scott Aniel, Religious Affections Ministry, he, he wrote behind every good musician is, you know what he said? Is a persistent mother. <laughs> behind every good musician is a persistent mother, all right? What, I'm, I'm saying all that to say what the word nurture implies and what the rest of the scripture confirms is nothing good we want to see happen in our children is going to happen without personal focused investment on somebody's part. And I, I can speak for Karen and I, we have profited from and highly value the help of teachers in the Christian schools we've been a part of. We, we value the help of teachers in music lessons. We value the investment of coaches in athletic endeavors. Mike can tell you this, and our kids will tell you this, we have never just sent them off to wherever it is. We, we've stayed actively engaged in the process, evaluating the process, keeping, uh, and evaluating their progress, and keeping the vision in front of them for why they're involved and why they're making that investment. And I know people talk about helicopter parents, and if you want to use it of me, I could care less. I'm responsible. I'm, I, I'm not to put them on a baseball team. I don't care if it was t-ball. I, just, we, I watched a t-ball game the other day and reminded why we only had two total seasons of t-ball and five kids. But I was thinking, of, we were in Canada. Samuel was playing t-ball, and, and he, he was on the Blue Jays team, but he, he didn't know any better. He kept calling his team the Blueberries. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's where we are. But... We have video of in-between innings. My wife catching me over with Samuel in-between innings of t-ball games, <laughs> instructing him about how to throw and how to catch and pay attention. Okay. Um, can it go overboard, perhaps, but whether it's, whether it's athletics or piano lessons, don't, don't send them to piano lessons and never go to a recital or check up on their homework and, you know, their, their practice time. Whatever it may be, stay involved in, in the structure of their life with a view to nurturing. And Lord willing, I'm going to come back to guidance of a particular text tonight. But what we don't want to miss from our, our passage here in Ephesians, and if you'll go back there, is that all of this nurturing, okay, this, this disciplinary correction, this structure of the life. And keep thinking, as you think of nurture, keep thinking primarily nonverbal. Corrective discipline, structure of the life, the priorities, all of that. But the nurturing here is nurturing that is in the Lord. And I know as you read it again, you fathers provoke not your children wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But that phrase of the Lord is describing both the nurturing and the admonition. All right, so we can't be targeting and, and be satisfied with children that are just good, productive citizens. That's not the target. This is nurture that is in the Lord. This is turning hearts to the Lord in every way we know how. So dads in particular, and, and you moms that are partners with us in this in, great endeavor, do you have a structure for life that is conducive to, first of all, 
Our children coming to the place that they realize life apart from the knowledge of God in Christ is a life of living death, dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, life apart from Christ is not living it up. <laughs> it's living death. I'm thankful for my wife's bird when our kids were little to not let a day go by without somehow setting the gospel before our unsaved children. But I would ask even now, what kind of of gospel ministry and approach to ministry and discipleship, approach to evangelism and discipleship, what kind of ministry are your older children being exposed to? And how often and in what environment and what are they understanding the gospel to be and a disciple of Jesus Christ to be? And, and then do we have a vision for their becoming what 2 Timothy 2 says, that are vessels fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Look, we are responsible for their schedules, their priorities, their education, their relationships, their jobs, their entertainment, their recreation. I could go on. Every aspect of their lives, we are responsible for pointing them towards the will of God and the pleasure of God, and not just by a few words here and there, but by the structure of the entire environment and purposeful interaction in their lives that points them to Christian maturity by the grace of God. That's a father's responsibility to his children. And then notice the third responsibility. We add to that this we're to avoid provoking the wrath structure the life to move them towards god's will and then number three we are to admonish them in the lord and this word admonish literally means to put to mind okay so the idea is that we put some things in their minds by means of words and this is where uh, you, can, you can pick up a, a significant difference. Nurture is primarily nonverbal. But admonition is very verbal. Okay? We're putting things in their minds by talking to them. Now, a number of years ago, Josh McDowell did a study of thousands of uh, evangelically churched young people. So some of that certainly would have been broader than our circles out of hundreds of churches. But the survey indicated that the average young person growing up in a gospel-preaching church spends about two and a half minutes a day in meaningful conversation with their dads. That's not conduct that glorifies God. It won't, it won't yield the end that God has established. Men, we have to find ways to spend time with our kids, and we have to find ways to talk with our kids. And I know some of us are, are more talkative than others. Okay, some of our kids would say, Dad, you can stop talking. Okay, um, uh, Others of us have a hard time talking. But listen, wherever we are, whatever our strengths and weaknesses are, we need to recognize this is one of our responsibilities to talk to our kids. And in addition to that, when you actually pursue the way, again, the word is used in the Bible, every time it's found in the New Testament, it's found in a context that to some degree is corrective. 
I'm not going to have us turn to these this morning, but 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, it's translated warn, warn the unruly. Same word. Okay? I, I know all of us as dads and moms would be so glad to be more positive, right? Don't you feel that sometimes? As a dad, you, you, I want to find ways to be more positive. As a mom, you want to be more positive. You feel like all the time you're saying, don't, or watch out, or be careful, or I warn you, and you, and you wish you could do something else. But, but a significant part of our stewardship, I'm just telling you that right in the Word that, that God has breathed out for us about our responsibility, right in the Word, there's indication that a significant part of our stewardship is to warn and keep on warning about dangerous thoughts. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth thee to err from the words of knowledge. Warn about dangerous relationships. Proverbs 31, the king was describing a virtuous woman, and he said, my mom taught me about dangerous women and about the dangers of alcohol. Moms, keep warning today. This is no day to let up on those two topics. Warn about dangerous relationships. Warn about dangerous substances. Warn about dangerous inroads of an ungodly world. The combination of a depraved nature and youthfulness is a destructive mix. Flee also youthful what? Youthful lust. Why does the Bible even highlight? Okay, there's temptations everywhere, but the Bible talks about youthful ones as being particularly dangerous. And one of the primary means of the grace of God to turn a child away from destruction is a dad who will take the time to communicate words of warning. And even with older and believing children, they still lack experience. The Bible describes that at one level as simple. Now, there's other levels of culpability for being simple. Some simple ones love their simplicity. But the fact is that simplicity at, at one level is just inexperience. And one of God's primary means to help simple ones avoid naive steps that can result in harm, again, is a dad who's willing to stay engaged and keep on talking. And again, we should note, as we think of this, that the admonition is an admonition that is in the Lord. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, men, this isn't just emphasizing the do's and don'ts. This isn't just kind of barking out condemnation, if we're thinking again in that way of warning, when our children violate our rules. One man said nurture, and in particular admonition that is in the Lord, it will teach three things. It'll teach the precept, which is the rule. It'll teach, secondly, the principle. What is the general rationale behind the rule? But this is where the P's are really helpful, the precept and the principle. But then he said, as believers and as Christian parents, go beyond the precept and the principle and teach the person, the, the, the person of God, how that principle 
that is behind that precept is rooted in the character and the pleasure of God. Um, last week we saw in Matthew that the rule was don't what? Does anybody remember that sixth commandment? Thou shalt not. Okay, the rule is don't murder. But Jesus even said, below the surface of that, there are ramifications for the heart and the words that we speak. But even further than that, do you remember when, when God gave the rule and he gave the penalty? Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. He gave a rationale. The rationale was what? Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God created he him. Okay? So, so the rule is don't punch your brother. Don't pull your sister's hair just because they have invaded your turf. Okay? They have taken the sweater from your closet without asking. Okay? The, the, the principle that is behind that rule that you don't get to punch and pull and scratch and claw okay? and say all kinds of yucky stuff to them and call them names. The, the, the principle behind that we saw in the law last week is even the life of a thief is more valuable than any possession you own. So the fact is your sister shouldn't take your sweater from your closet without asking, and we're going to deal with her, but your sister is even more valuable than that sweater. And you need to respond that way. But what we need to root that all in is that your brother or sister is equally made in the image of God. And God wants us to respect his image in everybody else, even if it's the life of a criminal sister. <laughs> we value that life and we respond a certain way because that life is made by God. That this, this kind of talk that keeps rooting our, our rules in the person and pleasure of God is time-consuming, but it is what our stewardship requires of us. And in general... What this all requires of us is to provide um, leadership for an atmosphere that involves purposeful daily interaction with God in his word. And the nature of that won't look exactly the same in all seasons of life. Okay? Our interaction looked different when we just had Samuel and Hannah. It looked a lot different when we had five that were nine and under. Okay? And it looks a lot different now when we're at a completely different season. It's not going to be the same, but we have to keep working at making sure there's engagement with the Word. And it's vital, folks, that we do all that we can to help everyone in the family profit from the ministry of the word in our local church first of all we ought to be in churches whether this is your church now <clears throat> or whether you're here visiting or god moves you somewhere else in the years to come 
I, I've seen people that are making decisions, and in some cases they're making decisions about their children. And it's like church is an afterthought. The job is the first thing. Other considerations are the first thing. And, and, and the church, well, of course we're going to find a church. I mean, there's churches everywhere. All right, well, well let me raise this up. A, a, a first priority in a church ought to be that it has the highest ideals of admonishment in the Lord. And then invest by attending and listening and following up and underscoring and using all the available resources to that end. This is our responsibility. And my greatest motivation to give attention to all three of these exhortations, to refrain from provoking the wrath, to commit to nurturing that is in the Lord, to commit to admonishment that is in the Lord, my greatest motivation is not just because it's a way to show love to my kids, but because this is conduct that contributes to the glorification of God. And this week I saw, for the first time, an article that Elizabeth Elliot wrote in 2015, where she reminisced about her dad. And um, she talked of a certain chickadee call. I don't even know what that would be. But she said when dad would come home day by day, there would be a certain chickadee call that would signal to mom that he was home. And then she recalled talks around the table about Christianity, about Philadelphia's fundamentalist, about the Depression, and about foreign missions. Those were the big ones that stood out to her. She talked about his reading the Bible and leading in prayer, but she also reminisced about his getting down on his hands and knees in the living room and allowing the kids to ride him like he was a horse. And then she talked about two kids at a time sitting on his size 12 shoes and him walking around with them sitting on his feet. She reminisced of his Saturday walks along a particular river and his miraculously finding, in quotes, saltines or Hershey bars that happened to be growing in the bushes and trees <laughs> along that river. She said of his authority, we were never in doubt. Interesting, I'm reading now, quoting from her. I can't remember ever thinking of him as a pal. I loved him, I'm sure of that, and at the same time, I always found him a little awesome. I think she meant by that a little fearful in that sense of reverence, not, not ever disavow. She said he was strict. By today's standards, he was exceedingly strict. She wrote, in her words, he had a temper that could flare up and for which he sometimes had to apologize. He made mistakes. I can see some of them now. But none was as serious as the one he did not make, that of being a father. We saw in both parents a humble honesty and a daily effort to live by the things they taught us to believe. And then her only bit of stronger exhortations, she started to preach a little at the end of reminiscing in this article. But she said, O ye fathers, ye young and timorous ones, why are ye so fearful? Is it that ye have no faith? You've been given a child. You've been delegated by God to him. Love him. Be to him a father. 
and I say that to all of you men. You've been given this by God. So access the grace of God and be a dad. And be one as close as you know how to be by his grace to what's exhorted upon us here and do it to the glory of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?